This is Chapter 11 of You Are Not Alone. I'm okay right now. Part 2. I'm the reason you sick ones pray to God as they lie there still. I'm the reason they cry out because I kill. Hello and welcome to You Are Not Alone, a 1v1 horror actual play podcast. I'm Blaine, your host and RPG-loving friend. A few things to get out of the way first. If you like what you hear, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. It would really mean the world to me, and it would help others find the podcast. Also, if you want to help out financially, I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Martin. Even a dollar a month goes a long way to helping cover all of the costs of running a podcast. Thank you for your consideration. If you want to reach out with comments, games you think would work well, would like to be a guest on the show, or just want to say hi, you can find me on Twitter at notalone underscore horror, or you can email me at youarenotalonepod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Last episode, I sat down with Rev from The Crit Show. We started playing Trophy by Jesse Ross. Trophy is a horror game about treasure hunters exploring a forest that does not want them there. It was a really great game, and you can find out more about it at TrophyRPG.com. Rev is playing a character named Orlin. Orlin is a retired soldier who now works as a ranger. Orlin is trying to find an old recording that is rumored to have incriminating audio on it, located somewhere in what is now the Croix-Voix National Forest in France. Shortly after entering the forest, Orlin heard the sound of an injured animal and followed it to find an elk caught in a trap bleeding a strange amber liquid, and signs that the traps were there more to keep people out. After leaving, Orlin came across a clearing, the center of which was a rock so covered in insects that the very surface seemed to be moving and pulsing. While trying to investigate the rock from afar, using a ritual that Orlin learned as a soldier, the insects took flight, thousands of lightning bugs rising up to fill the clearing with an amber light. Finally, Orlin found himself at an old house with a statuary garden. Statues seemed normal, but vine-covered, until Orlin decided to leave. So you leave the house and you walk to the garden and you kind of scout ahead a little bit. And just as you're about to leave the garden, Orlin notices that the moss and vines that were wrapped around one of the statues are gone and the face staring at Orlin as he's about to leave this garden behind it's the face of his brother I think that Orlin stares at this statue for a long moment and his eyes start to dart around to the other statues to see if there's you know before they were moss covered and and completely blank to see if there's any sense of change in those either as you as your eyes dart to the other statues all of their faces are still covered i think that in this moment of 
terror is not the right word, but there's this strange mix of, of excitement and fright that he goes to the statue directly next to it and tries to pull the moss and the vines away to see what's underneath. You tear the vines away. Back when Orlin was a soldier, who was his commanding officer? It was um, Pearlie was his last name. You see looking back at you, the deep set kind of hard eyes of First Lieutenant Pearlie. I think that standing there, seeing this face looking back, there is a temptation to continue to do this to the other statues, to to rip away the moss and the vines to see what other faces are there staring back at him. And he actually steps back and tries to compose himself, thinking back to some of the instructions that Pearlie had given him when he was working under him and he closes his eyes and breathes deep for a couple seconds and opens his eyes again. I think with the hope that this will still not be there, but with the intent of turning and walking away, if it is still the reality For a moment, when when you open your eyes, there is a sense of relief where you are convinced that it's not the face of your brother. It's not the face of Lieutenant Purley. And for just the briefest moment... They aren't. They're the faces of some strangers, some people you've never seen before. But then reality sets in, and you know that it is. It's the face of, of Basso, your brother, who is in Barcel prison, and it is the face of First Lieutenant Purley, who you served under when you were a soldier. And they are staring at you like they have something they want to tell you, but can't. Um, with every intent having been to turn and walk away and then opening my eyes and seeing that it has not changed, I think that it's not even a, a choice. It is reflex that I reach out and I touch my hand to the statue with my brother on it. And I try to push the spirit out of the statue. I try to use the hollow ritual. All right. All right. So since we've established that this is, this is a thing you've done before, I'm going to give you the first eye occupation or background. 
um, and you will get the dark die. Let me think of a devil's bargain. I think that as a play on one of the options, which is unintended harm, I think that if you take the devil's bargain, you are going to learn more about what's happening here than you necessarily want to. Yeah, I like that. I will take that because I think that, you know, as we go through this world, I'm getting more and more the sense of Orlin as someone who has just a toe into this supernatural world. That it is just the few things that he had picked up that were necessary for what he did but there's always that danger of having the door cracked and trying to let just a little air in well what happens if the wind blows hard to that door i think that makes sense there's always there's always more than you are quite prepared for yeah all right so you'll get all three dice okay okay so the black die is a one which is good uh, yes, that is. My green is a one and a four. Okay. Uh, so with a four, you will succeed at some cost, which again, you took the devil's bargain. So that kind of builds it right in for us. Mm-hmm. So you, what is, so let's start with, what does it look like when you use hollow? I think that it requires him to touch the thing that he is trying to expel and that again we see as he reaches out a small series of scars on the palms of his hand that start to glow with that same translucent blue as the scar on his temple did when he projected okay i like that so you so orlin reaches out and those scars glow blue and you you press your hand against the statue and suddenly there is this awful scream and it is the voice of first lieutenant pearly tell me about the first time that orlin heard that scream from pearly when you served together they were out on a night mission and they had expected to find resistance, but it was actually a trap because of the small, some would call magical skill set that we had. We were a special forces unit and he was instructed with using us as tools to get the information that was needed by the commanders. And one of the soldiers in our unit had the ability to let someone else see through their eyes to let them sense the world through them. And Pearly would always essentially ride along with him 
his name was Tincher, and he would basically get to put his mind inside of Tincher as Tincher scouted. And the group that we were there spying on, trying to get gather information about, ambushed him. And it started with him falling into a pit um, that they had put some pretty deadly things in the bottom of. And so while he was not actually getting the effects of it, he was living through the experience. And then the mental backlash from when Tincher had died and kind of expelled the, the mental presence of Pearly was the first and really only time I heard him scream like that. Excellent. That is the sound you hear as you press your hand against this statue. And as you look at it, its mouth has now moved to that awful gaping O as he screams out. And you see around you that the statue of your brother is mimicking that same face now and also screaming. And the other statues are screaming as well. And as you look to the other three statues that had not been unmasked yet. The first two you see are, are your parents. And then the third, you are looking at yourself carved in stone. And all five statues look like they are in pain and they are screaming. And as the ritual completes, the statues change suddenly into a thick yellow liquid and melt down into the ground. I think that I am already moving. Um, it is not a choice in that it is out the back of this garden over the fence, you know, what is left of this wrought iron fence and towards the, the area of trees that is thinner. Okay. Understandably, Orlin uh, is moving as quickly as possible, getting out of this area. You run through the woods and find yourself running through the area as it thins and as it thins until you are in a large clearing with a nearly intact building standing ahead of you. And I say nearly intact. It is obviously long abandoned and probably built sometime around the same time as the house. Although this was obviously built to last in a way that the house was not. It's a large stone building that has, you know, some portions missing. It has some windows that have either broken or rotted out. It has two very thick oak doors that have kind of fallen off of their hinges and lay kind of askew on the ground in front of the doorway but it is definitely still standing. I think that as I stop in the clearing, I press my back to one of the trees and stand there and breathe 
pretty heavily uh, from the adrenaline and I reach down and pull up the canteen and force myself to take a drink and put it back down and give a couple glances back over my shoulder towards the, the clearing that I came from. You know, I, I know that I can't see it from here, but just that sense of there was such a, a strange feeling there, a strange presence in that garden and having encountered that plus having encountered what felt different with the elk, I, I turn and look at this larger building and again, give that moment of silence, trying to feel what this feels like, you know, just the idea of an environment, how, how places feel a certain way, you know, a quiet church feels reverent because of the behavior of everybody there and the silence and, you know, being out in the woods and being now by this building, just trying to get a feeling of, does it feel like any of the places I've been so far? You know, because I imagine being on the path and it feels normal and every day and then being with the animals and it feels somewhat, holy is not the right word, but it feels somewhat sacred. And then being around that building, it feels dangerous, a little chaotic I'm just trying to get a sense of the clearing that I now stand in. Yeah, I th- I think as you stand there, it's interesting. The the almost somewhere between the two of those things or two of the things you mentioned, there is almost a reverence here that at first feels kind of like that sacred space of a church. But you look at the building, and you are pretty convinced that this probably isn't a church. Yeah. Doesn't have any of the kind of, even if it had potentially like fallen away or broken off, it doesn't have any area that looks like, you know, any kind of traditional church architecture. Yeah. It looks almost, if you had to guess, maybe uh, like an older collegiate building. Hmm but it has a sort of reverence about it. And because you've interacted with some of the creatures of these woods and because you have grown closer to the woods in a certain sense, this place feels safe. Hmm. Yeah. I think that with that feeling, I, take another drink of water and close the canteen and start to walk towards the doors that have fallen to disrepair. So you, and as you're approaching, actually you, you see a fawn kind of come out of the woods and this fawn has hooves that are that amber color and those same eyes that you've seen before. And it kind of looks at you and, and doesn't shy away, doesn't look menacing. It leans down at some point and, and chews on a few blades of grass. And then it looks up and it walks into the building. I think that I take that as a, a good omen 
and I follow it not closely, uh, but through the same way that it went in. Okay. So you have, uh, you enter in and it, you immediately know what kind of building this is. It looks like an old theater. There is a stage up ahead with kind of moth-eaten curtains hanging off to the side. There are rows of chairs that lead back from the stage. So it looks like maybe an old college theater of sorts. Hmm. But you see, kind of dotted around the seats, you see all sorts of different animals of the woods. There are rabbits, there are squirrels, there are some birds perched on the back of seats. That fawn that you saw has taken a spot in the audience. And on the stage, you see a deer, a full-grown deer, and and a goat. But they're standing on their hind legs, and they're wearing masks. And it almost it almost looks like they're acting out of play. I think the surprise at these two animals standing on their hind legs and these seats and these other animals around, again, so much of the initial response is not really a choice. I reach my hand out to the seat next to me and I find myself sitting down in the chair and watching with these other animals. So you sit down and it's a, I'm not going to say comfortable. It's a, a chair that has sat in ruin for quite some time, but it's not uncomfortable. And you watch as this play kind of unfolds before you. And you can't make the animals while seemingly delivering lines are making the sounds that they would normally make. There's a bleeding sound coming from the goat and the deer is making that kind of odd sound that deer make, but they seem to be delivering lines and communicating as they play out this scene. And it appears to be, from what you can gather, a scene at some kind of maybe grand ball where two people have moved off to the side and are having a private conversation. Do you, does Orlin continue to watch? Yeah, I I think that, you know, it it reminds me of that scene where Ray first sees a ghost that it's just open mouth and eyes fixed in almost disbelief. And as it goes on for a couple of minutes, my eyes finally start to soften a little bit. And I start to look around the audience again. And as odd as it sounds like the idea of looking around and seeing these other animals watching still would be enough that I would start watching again. Like if I were to look at these animals and they're doing normal animal things and not paying attention and, you know, scratching themselves or, you know, picking at grass or whatever, that that would be enough to break the spell. But with the other animals watching, I think that my 
gaze falls back and I continue to watch. And you do, as you look around, they all are, are attentively watching this play. Um, and after a few more moments of the goat and the deer speaking to one another, a third it seems strange to call them actors, <laughs> but a, a third actor enters onto the stage and it is this massive bear and it too is standing on its hind legs. Although that's something a little bit less unusual. Perhaps bears have been known to stand on their hind legs, but it is wearing these long, luxurious yellow robes and it too is wearing a mask and it sort of roars as it exits onto the stage. And then you hear the bear in this deep and gravelly voice say, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hearing that phrase causes Orlin to take like a couple sharp tight blinks and I start to look around again and I'm trying to see if all of the animals present have that amber color in them somewhere. They do. All of them have those oddly intelligent amber eyes and all of them have some part of their natural physiology that would normally not be that color, whether it be talons or beaks on the birds, hooves or nails or whatever, some part of their physiology is that color. And in looking around, is the bear the only predator that I see? Yes. Yeah, something about the bear coming onto the stage. Like, even though I'm still watching, I feel anxious now. Uh, And I think that I'm looking around to see if any of the other animals feel uneasy about the presence of this predator, if it just seems that it hasn't affected their uh, attention or enjoyment or whatever of what's going on at all. There is in them maybe not quite fear, but there is the look on their faces and in their mannerisms that is present in a person when they watch a play or a movie, when the tension is building, they become kind of slightly more anxious like they know something is coming, but again, not quite fear, not like they fear the bear in an animalistic survivalist sense, but almost like they they have something. Yeah. Like they have, you know, they're watching Titanic and they know what part of the movie they're at. Yes, exactly. I think that, I think that I understand that in a way that Orlin does not yet. 
Um, and so I think that Orlin, I start to just very, very quietly as I feel this tension rising, that there's just this, this no, 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 no. That there's this muttered no of like some kind of impending violence that I can't stop. And having seen a piece of violence against one of the animals earlier that I didn't stop, it's starting to build panic in him that he's going to see it here in a second. All right. As, as Orlin kind of mouths, no, 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 no. You, he, you watch as the bear in yellow robes pulls off his mask and savagely attacks the deer that is on the stage. And you watch as so at the at the moment that the deer is attacked by the bear, there's a kind of scream that echoes out through the audience that isn't like sheer terror, but again is like they knew this was coming and it's a jump scare, so it makes them jump and kind of naturally react. But that kind of that kind of reaction is different than pure terror. Yeah which is not what they're feeling. It is not what the screams sound like. And as you watch the bear eat this deer, there are sounds from the audience like approval. Not I none of the none of the I mean some of the creatures could could clap. So maybe the the there's a clapping from like the rabbits and the squirrels who are who have appendages that they could they could clap together. But the animals that don't, the birds and such let out sounds of joy like a story well told. Orleans initial response when the bear removes its mask and first starts to to attack the deer is stumbling back in the chair like i think that at the point when i start to notice that the animals seem to do this clapping or or ground thumping or whatever they're doing that he is on the ground behind the chair that he was in. Like he has unknowingly climbed and kind of fallen backwards before realizing that the scream from the animals is not a, we are all next, but that, that, that it seems to be still holding their attention and that, that it has a, a not a positive connotation, but that it has a, an air of respect to it or, you know, that sense of applause and that he, that I start to stand up as they're all doing this, and I look back towards the stage to see what the bear is doing now that it has gotten through this. So, for a few moments, mostly while while Orlin is kind of freaking out, the bear continues to to eat the deer like a bear would normally do. But then there's a point where all of that stops and the bear 
and the goat kind of stand at the forefront of the stage and bow to increasingly louder foot stomping and chirping and and sounds of approval. And some of the creatures are even like throwing woodland trinkets up on the stage, berries and nuts and wreaths made of vine as these two creatures bow. It sounds absurd, but I think in this place that I get the impulse to, to join like that, there's a moment where I raise my hands as if I'm going to put them together. But then I look at my hands and I look at the blood on the stage and I turn and I walk back out into the lobby of this theater looking around, you know, cause I had followed the deer before. And so I think I came straight into this theater when I heard the noise but now I'm looking around this this entryway to see what is there because I have this feeling of I'm not – this can't be real. I, I must be either dreaming or, or something. And so I'm looking for like touchstones to the world that I know out in this theater's lobby. Okay. So you go back out and you see – uh, the lobby is pretty wide open. Like I said, this looks very much like a collegiate theater. Mm-hmm. There is an area that you would probably wager was a box office. This was probably an operational theater at a time where concession stands weren't really a thing. So it's probably predominantly just a wide open space with an area that's closed off that looks like maybe an office. Which has an old wooden door that is still standing and closed. And then a hallway probably that leads off to kind of wrap around and go to the backstage area. I think that I start to go towards that door. Like, I think there's a moment of hearing that sound from behind me and looking around and realizing, or not realizing, but looking around and seeing those trappings of like an academic theater and that I on some level know I need to just keep looking for what I'm here to look for. And so I go over to the door and see if I can get into it. Okay. You walk over and it is, you imagine that at one time this door locked, but it is old enough that the locking mechanism has kind of fallen into disrepair. So uh, the door opens as soon as you kind of push in on it and you see a small room that looks like it was probably the, the theater manager's office. There is a desk that is kind of toppled over. It looks like one of the legs, one or two of the legs have kind of rotted away. Um, and so the desk is still mostly intact, but leaning against the floor, there are a few, chests of drawers that look like they probably are for for various documentation, sales of receipt, etc. But it looks like an office. I think that I start to go through anything I can find in here looking for any explanation of what this place was. 
what it is. You know, I, I came here with the idea of, I have to keep looking for the piece that I'm, I'm hoping will help my brother. But deep down, I think I'm really still looking for an explanation as to what I'm witnessing. Yeah. So you go through and you find like you going through the drawers and everything, you find that most of what was left in here is kind of rotten away in the years that this theater has obviously been closed, but you do find um, kind of near the desk, something that was probably sitting on the desk uh, that identifies this as the university of Croivois theater. So much as you expected a collegiate theater. And you also find a playbill for a play called the King in yellow. I open it and look at the cast list. So as you page through the cast list, they're all human. Okay. <laughs> um, but you do see, um, as playbills are wont to do, there are some pictures from the play itself. And there is a scene in the playbook that looks very similar to, to the scene that you saw unfold where it's two people kind of standing off in kind of an odd place of, of the stage that feels kind of distantly removed from whatever the main action is, both wearing these just plain white masks. And you see a kind of entering center stage, this large person wearing robes that it's a black and white photograph. So you can't tell color, but look like those same yellow robes that the bear was wearing also wearing one of those masks. I think I fold the pamphlet back closed and tuck it back into the desk. And for a, a good moment, simply cross my arms and lay my head down on the desk. And while I'm sitting in the silence of this room trying to just breathe and push this fear out that I have that I've blown a gasket, that something is wrong, that the pressure, the stress of what is happening with my brother has, has caused some part of my mental well-being to come loose. I am still keeping an ear out for the sounds coming from inside the theater. I think at that point, as you, as Orlin is sitting there with his head down, you do hear the sounds of animals beginning to, to exit the theater and shuffle out of the building. I think that I go to the door and I and I watch for a moment. As you watch, you see all of the various animals, the, the squirrels, the rabbits, the deer, the goats, all of the various birds exit out. And they're acting more like animals now. Their eyes are still that amber color, but they don't seem to be quite as knowing or intelligent as 
those eyes were when they were watching the play. And they're just, they're leaving out through the door, processing out. And I wait until the audience has filed out and I go back into the theater. As you enter back into the theater, the audience itself is all processed out. And you enter in and you see near the stage, the bear. And it is no longer wearing its robes or its mask. And it looks to Orlin more like a regular bear now. And it sees you and it roars. And in that moment, it, it seems so implausible. But Orlin, I shout the name of the actor that was in that photo that was wearing that costume. You shout out that name. What is the name uh, of that? It's uh, Rory Ventling. You shout out the name Rory Ventling. And there's almost a brief glimmer of recognition in its eyes. But then it's all primal again, and it roars, and it begins to charge at you. Yeah, I move as quickly as I can. I'm going to try to get back into that office and and close and bar the door, like push the desk up against the door. Okay. You uh, give me a give me a roll to outrun. I will give you both as a retired soldier and a ranger. I think you get your uh, your base die for trying to evade this bear. Okay. The devil's bargain, I think, is going to be if you if you take the bargain, the amount of extra time it's going to take you to kind of make sure you're safe is going to ensure that it is going to be dark by the time you leave this theater. Uh, yeah, I think that in the moment of starting to move, that while it is not the best situation to be caught out in this forest in the dark. It is better than being caught by that bear right now. (laughs) It makes sense. And then is this a thing that you want to risk your body or mind to succeed at? Uh, no, I think that I have some confidence back now that it is moving and sounding like a normal bear that this is a just a matter of getting either to a high place or a closed place away from a wild animal. I think that's that's fair. So that is going to be uh, the two regular color okay. dice then. Oh no! <laughs> uh, so that is a my highest dice is a two. Okay, so there is an option in trophy. If you don't like the results of your roll, you can roll again and add an additional dark die. So in this case, it would be the one dark die or the one ruined. Okay. So that's an option. Okay. And so with that, I roll the dark die and. And re-roll both. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. All right. Yeah. I think I, I think I have to. All right. Okay, 
so that is a six, and my dark die is a five. All right, so your dark die is not the highest die, and it is also not higher than your Correct. Opponent. So you get exactly what you want. So you get into the office, you slam the door shut, you put the desk in front of it, and you sit there and listen as the bear tries to get through the door, but is unsuccessful. What do you do while you wait for the bear uh, to lose interest? I think I go through this office a little more thoroughly that I am, you know, there's this weird mix of there. It seems like there used to be some kind of, of school out here, but there's this animal or nature presence. And I I think I'm just looking for any indication of what else was out here. You know, is there is there a piece of paper I can find that has the old campus map on it? You know, anything that might give me an indication of what else that university had out here that might point me towards the building maybe I'm looking for so that I can make a beeline and try to get out of here as opposed to going to every building I see. Yeah, I think so. I think that is uh, you, you spend some time going through and you find a few you find so you find information that this used to be the University of Croivois, um, that there was a, a small town and a small university in this area. You find a, a, a kind of artistic rendering of the campus with the village kind of on the outskirts of the, the campus proper. And of all of the buildings that you see that you think might be of the most interest, there is a building that is labeled as uh, the University of Croivois radio station. And you figure if there's something you, what, what you heard is that there's information out here that would be incriminating. And you think that maybe it was an interview or something along those lines done at this old radio station that might have the information you look, nothing else really looks like, a place that you would find anything incriminating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that seeing the radio station on the map that we hear that static that Orlin heard when the fireflies took off, that he hears that as he, as he reads the, the word radio station on the map and decides that that's where he's going to go once he's he's certain the coast is clear outside. So Orlin kind of finishes rifling through everything, and eventually you hear the bear kind of let out this tired grunt. You hear it walking away from the door, and you give it plenty of time, uh, but you feel that the, the bear has lost interest and left. And you would guess, I would imagine, as both a soldier and a ranger, you have a pretty good ability to naturally track time. And you think that it is probably now very close to midnight. Yeah. So I will take that map with me and try to get my bearings inside of the theater before I go out so that I can point myself in the right direction of the radio station. 
All right. So you, I mean, you are very skilled in things like that. So you get your bearings, and as soon as you exit out, you know, just head a little bit further north and maybe a little bit east from this location, and that should get you right to the radio station building. And sure enough, it does. You move through the woods. The woods have overtaken what used to be the campus of the University of Croivois, and it looks like large numbers of the buildings have are completely gone. But you move through the woods, and you come to a small squat stone house. And kind of, it looks like it was probably repurposed, because you see kind of towering out of the back is a radio tower. How sturdy does it look? It looks pretty sturdy, about as sturdy as the theater did where it's not in terrible ruins, but it is certainly starting to be overtaken. I'm going to go towards the entrance to this building. And as I do, I want to pay kind of close attention to the radio tower to get a sense of if it might even be possible to climb, because I think what my goal is, is to go inside, hopefully find something and, shimmy up this and get a sense of where I am in the forest so I can try to find my way back out. Okay. Yeah, you think, I mean, it looks like a pretty well-built radio tower, so kind of just giving it a, a glance over, you think that it could probably support your weight should you need to climb it, either to figure out where you are or potentially to escape. Okay. Yeah, so I will make a mental note of that and go inside. All right. You enter inside. And as soon as you walk in, you immediately feel like something isn't quite right. And you look around and you realize what it is, is that the outside of the building, it still looked sturdy, but it was definitely showing signs of age. And when you walk inside, you don't see any signs of age. It looks like it would have the last time it was used. Everything is pristine. You enter into what obviously looks like a kind of foyer to a house that leads back to a hallway And on either side, there are doors. There are two doors on the left of the hall. There are two doors on the right of the hall. I think that I take that as a good sign and start to move towards the door that would have been closest to the radio antenna from outside. Okay. You think that would have been the back left door? Yeah, so I will start to go down the hallway towards that door. You open that door. And it looks like a very old radio broadcast booth. There are some old microphones still in perfect condition, old recording technology, a few chairs. Um, it looks like this would have both been probably a DJ's booth and a place where they conducted interviews. There are shelves on the walls that are all covered in records. Yeah, so I will walk into the room 
and close the door behind me and start to go around the 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 booth and start to look through um, to see if I can find any you know sign of things that are on tape or on cassette, any kind of saved recordings or anything. Yeah, so you the first couple of shelves you look at are all records, and they're records that span a pretty large period of time. You see some very old kind of thick pressed kind of phonograph records of old piano concertos. And you find some like early blues and jazz and records that are probably from the thirties and forties. And it ends at about 47 or 48, but a whole variety of music from those time periods. But the last shelf you come to has boxes of, various kind of reel-to-reel and wax cylinder recordings, and they're labeled with various names on them. And as you kind of give a cursory glance over all of these labels, you see a number of names that the, the person itself maybe not specific, but the last names f- feel important. You know that they are tied to kind of dynastic families. I think that I start to take off my pack and try to load a number of these into my bag. You know, I don't imagine the the storage device that they're in going in, but I imagine looking around trying to find something that would protect them, especially like the the presses if the bag was to drop or something so they wouldn't get get broken. Yeah, you can find a way to pad them, and you grab all of the ones that you think. You're not sure which ones, but from what you were told, this sounds like what it is It is that you're looking yeah. for. And obviously, at another location, you could certainly go through and find uh, whichever, whichever recording is the one that is kind of the jackpot, the, the gold at the end of the rainbow that has been promised. Yeah, because I don't think that – I think that there is a moment where – packing these away the thought of i wonder if i should try to figure out which one of these is the proper one there's equipment here and as i look down at like the the reel to reel for example that i notice for the first time that that thick talon like fingernail and there's that sensation again of I'm having, I'm having an issue like this. This isn't real. I need to get out of here. This will, my head will clear once I'm back home. Uh, And so I think I skip over that idea of, of finding the one that I need and just packing it all away. I think that's fair. So you're packing up and all of a sudden, from behind you, there's a, a click. And then another click. And another. And it sounds like all of the various bits and bobs of the broadcasting room being turned on again. I think I freeze when I hear the first click. And slowly start to 
turn to look in the direction of the sounds. All right, you turn, and all of the various pieces of equipment around the room have begun to light up again. And the first thing you hear is just radio static. And now the whole room is kind of illuminated by the various lights of these various pieces of equipment. And breaking the silence of the static is the voice. You recognize it immediately. It's the voice of the bear, which might have been the voice of Rory. You don't know. But it says, again, that line, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then it's static again. And I imagine my eyes loosely wandering from the pieces of equipment and the lights and then turning towards that, you know, that, that pane of glass that would, would be like the producer's booth and just looking into that room to see if it is also darkness or if there are lights on in there, if there's anything in there. All of those lights are off. It's only the lights in this room. And again, you hear that voice say, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's the same kind of meter and cadence and tone and voice that you're pretty certain this is a recording. And it says it a few more times. And always in that same meter and tone and cadence. And it seems to just be on repeat. That one line. I want to go to the door and try to open it and get back out into the hallway. Okay. You open the door, and as soon as you open the door, all of the lights in the room behind you go out. And you immediately are looking at a building in ruin. The interior of the building now matches the exterior. Uh, The wallpaper has peeled in various places. There's mold and mildew everywhere. It has this dank smell of a building that has sat unused for God knows how long. But that static, that static is still there. And that voice is still repeating It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. With all the lights off and the building in disrepair, I think for the first time I have the presence of mind to think about where the voice is coming from. Like, do I hear this static and this voice coming from a certain location, or is it just... I hear it. It seems to be coming from everywhere all at once. It is kind of emanating from every pore of this building. 
that radio static and that voice repeating that one line from the play just over and over again, the more you try to find a source for it, the more you realize that there is no exact source. I think kind of for the first time this game, I'm going to have you make a ruin roll. Just kind of standard, because I feel like this is probably getting to a point where it's now just kind of overwhelming. So you just roll your one, that one off-color die. And at this point, you have a five. I do. So as long as you don't roll a six, you're going to be okay. Four. Okay. So tell me how Orlin manages to keep it together despite the fact that this static and this voice are just emanating from kind of nowhere and everywhere at once. So as he's standing, as I'm standing there in the hallway, realizing that this sound is not coming from a speaker, it is not coming from like a set location, but that it's just coming from all around me, that I fall into a different breathing pattern and it is one that Pearly had taught us that you're supposed to use early on in your training when you're first getting ready to use one of these, again, these slightly magical senses, these, these kind of off abilities. And it was something that they found that not only calmed the heart rate but what he called calmed the spirit and he was like you know nobody knows what the spirit is but it just seems to help focus people that have this extrasensory ability and so we say it calms the spirit and he starts to do that breathing pattern that he would use when he was much younger before he was getting ready to try one of these abilities and it and it kind of regulates his mental state for the moment. Excellent. So you manage to kind of bear down and it, it doesn't change anything. The static yeah. is still there and the voice is still there, but you're kind of able to at least pretend like they're not. What, what do you do? And I am going to do what I had initially planned and go outside and try to climb up that radio tower to make sure the direction that I think will lead me back out is still in the direction that I feel like it is. That that sounds like an odd statement, but Orlin has had enough moments in this of being out of sorts and turned around and moving without his intent that he's not quite sure that the South is that he knows where the South is still. That is, I, that is completely understandable. You did just witness a group of woodland creatures put on yeah. play. So you climb up the radio tower and it does support you. It, as you climb that static and that voice are still with you. Even once you leave the building, it seems like now almost like there are thousands of, cicadas or crickets in the trees making this sound and as you climb the radio tower the iron of the tower almost vibrates 
and pulses with that static and that voice. And you get to the top and you're able to kind of look around and identify the way you came. And it's probably not the quickest way. You're deep enough in the woods now where it might actually be a little bit quicker to follow through north, which is certainly an option you have. But the south, at least, you kind of know the way. And you are able to identify which way you came from and then also the quickest way out. So which would Orland take? Um, from up here, do I get a sense of north becoming denser forest? Or am I passing back through the densest part of the forest to go back the way I came? It is probably... You're kind of, at this point, it feels like almost at the heart of the uh-huh. forest. As far as like the density goes. So you think it's probably about the same either way. There's just a little bit more of like sparse forest heading south. So distance-wise, it's a little bit further going south back the way you came. But either way, north or south is kind of the same as far as passing through the dense parts of the wood. I think that it is tempting in that moment to take the faster route. But I make the decision to go back the way that I came for no other reason than that is where my vehicle is. If I go north, it's going to be a whole lot of more travel time to get back around to the vehicle and get to a place where I can start dealing with with the weight I feel on my back now in those those recordings. All right. So I'm going to have you make one last okay. roll to navigate these woods at night. And so obviously your ranger will give you the first die. The devil's bargain I'm going to give you is not necessarily that like you won't get out or that you'll have some kind of like major encounter in the woods, but that it's going to take you longer, and that's more time for the woods to just get their hold on you. <sighs> um, I think that in this moment, I'm going to try to rely solely on my abilities as a ranger. Okay. And so I guess that probably answers the final question of, are you willing to risk your body and mind? Yeah, not at this point. Okay. So give me 1d6. Okay, a 5. All right. So that is a success, but at some sort of cost. So I think that we'll kind of wrap this into a prologue of the story. Your ruin isn't going to go up again, so you are going to escape with a five ruin. 
But as Orlin leaves the woods, give us one last sign of the woods and their presence that will last for the rest of Orlin's life. So as Orlin has found his way back to the dirt path, he walks down it and he has felt his mind and his breath and everything start to return to relative normal. And he gets to the point where the cobblestones start up again for the path leading out. And he can't initially take that first step onto the cobblestone. He has this strange pull to stay and he actually doesn't go onto the cobblestones. He walks beside the path and actually detours back out to where he'd originally seen that first elk die. And he's standing in that clearing. And his eyes just keep going back, not to the elk, but to that trap. And he is overcome with this anger that there is something in this woods that is intentionally or unintentionally harming these animals. And he is a hunter himself. And as he walks back towards the path, he looks back to his right and looks at the path where it turns back into the, the dirt. And he sees a shadow moving. And in his mind, he makes this strange realization that he's going to be back here again at some point. And he doesn't know why, but it just feels right. Because with his ability to see far and to trap things when they don't want to be trapped the nickname that he had tried to shake from his time in the army was wolf. And he gets this feeling that this forest needs a wolf and that he will be back here at some point and that he's not going to be able to leave. But the weight of the recordings on his back and Remembering the screaming statue of his brother is enough to push his foot onto the cobblestone and turn him to the left, walking down the path out of the forest and back to civilization for now. And I can't think of a better place to 
have the camera fade to black <laughs> as Orlin walks out of the woods with that pack on his back, knowing that someday he'll be back. Oh, that was this game. Oh was man, really that good. was fun. I uh say uh yeah, I it's interesting running this, you know, one on one horror game where it does get super yeah. intense. And so like whenever a game ends, my immediate reaction is just silence. Uh-huh. Uh which isn't great. No, no, podcast. but it's understandable. That was uh there were some moments in there where I, I get you know, I love role playing, obviously. And so sitting in kind of my dark office and envisioning these things and feeling the hairs on my arm stand up on end and stuff is is really nice. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on and and playing this with me. As we close out, I, I'll ask one more time just to let folks know where to find you. Yeah. So again, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Rev. I am the host and GM of The Crit Show, which is a Monster of the Week actual play podcast. If you like things like... Buffy or Supernatural or Army of Darkness, that that horror with a little bit of action, a little bit of comedy, it's kind of right up your alley. In the second season, we start to play some other Powered by the Apocalypse games, but it is completely still within the frame of the main plot. And we try to set it up so that whenever we play a new game, whether it's Monster of the Week or Dungeon World or any other game, that within the first story arc, you leave knowing how to play that game and uh, you can find me at rev deshane d-e-s-c-h-a-i-n on twitter Uh, you can find the show at the crit show on instagram and facebook and twitter Uh, you can find us any place you download podcasts and our listeners are going to love listening to this because they all enjoy how much of a fear of supernatural things I have running a Monster of the Week podcast. <laughs> so when I told them I was coming on to the show, many of them were very excited. Well, I'm glad that we'll pique their interest in seeing you get uh, have, have the tables yes, turned yeah. on you. Thank you for listening to You Are Not Alone. Really hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you to Rev for playing. Check out his podcast, The Crit Show, a Monster of the Week actual play podcast. Thank you also to Jesse Ross for designing such a wonderful game. Find out more at TrophyRPG.com. Our theme song is Everybody Knows My Name by Harley Poe. Thank you to Joe Whiteford for letting us use it. Our next episode will be out on Halloween, and it is the start of a really cool project that has been in the works for a while now. Until then, remember that you are strong. You are beautiful. And you are not alone. Don't you know?
Cry.